morning everyone. I'm Emily and I'm going to read from 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 15 to 25. So that was 2 Kings chapter 2 15 to 25. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then they went to the spring of the water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore fifty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Thanks, Emily. See, we've got ten more boys that were killed. <laughs> It's getting worse. <laughs> Can I pray for us? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for an occasion to sit under your word. I pray that you would speak to us clearly. These things have been preserved by your Holy Spirit through many, many generations so that we can have this moment together reading them, studying them, thinking about them. May these words come alive. May they rebuke us and challenge us. May they encourage us. And so we commit this moment we have to you, and we pray that it would be edifying and um, that we would thank you at the end. Amen. So I don't know if you've been noticing, but it's... Ooh, it's uh, booby-trapped. Never trust the, uh, the daughter church, eh? <laughs> So uh, I'm sure you've all noticed already uh, as you go around town, go to Midland Gate, you've got uh, everyone, all the decorations up today, you know, it's the big day, all the supermarkets and the stores, you know, Reformation Sunday, right? You've seen all the Halloween. Isn't that interesting? The world wants Halloween over Reformation Sunday. What are we doing? We have a fear problem. That's, that's our problem. We have a fear problem. We want to, because what is Halloween all about? It's a sort of, this sort of macabre celebration of death, isn't it? 
And we all dress up as things that are supposed to be presumably frightening, horrifying. But what are we doing? We, in, in setting up these things, we're forgetting him whom we should really fear. And all of this is really a pretense. Because we know that at the end of the day, behind all the fake blood, fake skeletons, ghosts, and all the rest of it, every one of us in this room must face our creator. And that is a terrifying thought, which is why a day in the year which historically celebrates a rediscovery of the word of God and his authority gets replaced by this, these cheap thrills. And I, I have before you this morning a thought experiment. What if I was to collect every manifesto, mission statement, every piece of legislation and official paperwork from every government department, regional and national, uh, departments of health, finance, social services, the Reserve Bank, Australian Tax Office, right the way through to departments of human rights, environment and science, defense, justice, transport, the treasury, and let's include all the Shire councils while we're at it too, all the 537 governing uh, documents from across the country. Let's bring them into this room. And uh, since we think we're having fun, let's uh, keep collecting policies and information from all the media centers and broadcasting networks. So think of ABC, SBS, Channel 9, Channel 7, and in fact, just because we have way too much time on our hands, let's add to that Netflix, uh, Amazon Prime, Hulu, HBO, Disney. And while we're at it, why don't we list every, every large listed company in the world, uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Microsoft, Pfizer, Samsung, McDonald's, you name it, we get it. We want all the paperwork. Uh, we want their core values. We want their performance indicators. And perhaps we can even add to that list all the schools and universities. Uh, let's get their curriculum guidelines and syllabi. We want to find it. We want to print it. We want to bring it in here. We want to stack it up. We want piles and piles of documents. And then we want to start reading through them. And we're only looking for one thing. One word. Jesus. Do you think in five hours of searching through all the official documentation from all of these organizations, that you would find that one word. If you had to sift through all the core values and mission statement stuff, all that verbiage, what does that tell us? It tells us something we should already know. Our world does not fear the Lord. Our country doesn't fear the Lord. Our city does not fear the Lord. In fact, I can't think of one listed company that fears the Lord. I'm bring this right down to street level. The people living in our neighborhoods do not fear the Lord. Now, what am I not saying? I'm not saying that there are no Christians... I'm not saying that, that, that no Christians in these organizations. I'm not saying there's no people 
working for these companies and in these schools and in these universities who don't fear the law. I'm not saying that. But if we think about this institutionally and systemically, when we put together everything that drives us to work and play and learn and think, when we look at all those things that consume our money, our houses, and hold our attention for hours and days and weeks, where is Jesus Christ? If you find him in the appendices, you're lucky. Here's the verdict. Of all the creatures on the face of this planet, we are the most stupid. If we ever did manage to collect all of that paperwork and fill this room up to the rafters, and thankfully you've got some space up here too. If we did manage to finish that exercise, do you know what we would have achieved? We would have just succeeded in collecting perhaps the most compelling evidence to date of our utter willful stupidity and ignorance. Because how can we afford to miss his name off any official record? Who is Jesus Christ? He is Lord. He is Lord of Lords. He is Lord of Lords of Lords. He is Lord of everything. He is Lord of every planet, every star, every moon, comet, and asteroid. He is Lord of everything that moves and everything that doesn't move. He is Lord of space, time, and matter. He's Lord of history. He's Lord of everything that's going to happen in the next five minutes, the next five days, the next five weeks, years, centuries, till all the, the clocks stop and eternity pushes on forever and ever and ever. He's Lord of your body. Every fiber and muscle, every organ, visible and invisible, from your brain to your spleen. He's Lord of everything that you do and everything that is done to you. He determines all of it, every single tiny, intricate detail of our lives before there was time until now and forever. Every proton, electron, neutron, quark, neutrino, Higgs boson, and whatever else they're going to name next. Everything that makes up everything else, he rules it. He determines its place, its time, its movement, its state, quality, quantity. He determines it all. He is Lord. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that he doesn't own. Everything in this room, right down to the hair and skin cells in this carpet, are his. A million incomprehensible things happened to each one of us this morning before we'd even had breakfast. And if they hadn't, we wouldn't be here. But Jesus Christ made them happen. This is reality. This is the reality that stands behind everything that ever was or is or will be. This is the I am who I am of all of it. If we had any sense at all, what would he do? We would fear him. We would want to know him. How can we not want to know what he expects of us, what he has done for us, what he has planned for us? What he thinks should be of paramount importance to everything that breathes on this planet. Whose image are we made in? We're made in his. We were born for him, given bodies for him. We're alive together today because of him. Is there anything more important than this? And of course, that's why we're here this morning. That's why he's given us this odd story from 2 Kings chapter 2. Just another reminder of why we should fear him. Another reminder of why we would be crazy to think we could ignore this God. 
So let's go back 2,800 years to a city called Jericho. And as you might have noticed, a little drama is unfolding and it concerns all of us, which we'll come to in a moment. Elisha has just taken a shortcut across the Jordan River on his way to way back to Jericho, which is to say he has crossed it like Joshua once did on dry ground with water stacked up on either side. And after crossing the river, he's got about nine kilometers further to walk before he gets to the city. And as he approaches, he captures the attention of a whole host of people called the sons of the prophets that happen to be looking on. And this is where the confusion begins, because they have a theological problem. Evidently, something has happened between Elijah and Elisha. And if you know the backstory, you'll remember that when Elijah's time in this world came to an end, he didn't just die. Of all the human remains that have filled coffins and tombs and graveyards across our planet, Elijah's bones are conspicuously absent. Thanks to a whirlwind and chariots of fire, Elijah is taken directly from this world into the next without having to pass through rigor mortis. Elijah is one of those few people who went to be with the Lord before their bodies died. But for our friends in Jericho, this news hasn't yet got out to the journalists. We know that the only person who saw Elijah go up to heaven was Elisha. So what do these sons of the prophets in verse 15 know? Well, they've seen Elisha returning from the other side of the Jordan. And the last time they saw him cross, he had Elijah with him. But this time he's by himself. Elijah is gone. It's a bit suspicious, right? But actually, there's a bit more going on here, because if you look back at verse 3 in our same chapter, you'll see this. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. So what does that tell us? God has already told these guys that he will take Elijah home that very day. So initially it seems like, if you look at this text, they're on the right track because in verse 15 they say, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So far so good. But then they decide to send out a search party for Elijah. And it gets worse. What does Elisha tell them? Verse 16. He says to them, you shall not send. And only after pestering him to the point of embarrassment does he eventually decide to let them carry out this fool's errand. And of course, as the reader, we already know that they're not going to find anything. So when they come back after three days of searching, what's the lesson? Fear the Lord. God had already told them directly and from the mouth of Elisha that Elijah would not be found. Yet, they went looking for him anyway. How often are we just like these prophets? God gives us his word and instead of believing it and acting upon it, we do our own thing. We inflict misery on ourselves to no avail. We waste our time, we frustrate ourselves with things God tells us not to worry about. 
For each one of us here this morning, there are any number of Elijahs out there that we keep looking for that are not there to be found. We will look for the will of God in all sorts of places when he's really told us plainly in print what he expects from us. We search for happiness and fulfillment in stuff when he's already told us where true contentment lies. We spend our time reading self-help books and watching endless YouTubers give us their thoughts and ideas about what's happening in the world and what to expect when all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus. We send probes out into space looking for intelligent life on other planets when he's already told us where he's put all the creatures. We worry about climate change when God has already told us in Genesis 8.22 and in Jeremiah 5.22 that no one's going to mess with this planet's climate. What are we doing? We're looking for Elijah. Let's stop looking for Elijah and fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Foolish detours, dead-end streets, they can all be avoided if we fear the Lord. But let's go back to Jericho. As it turns out, Jericho has a problem. Verse 19. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees. But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. And if you look at verse 21, you'll see that as far as barren wastelands go, Jericho is the real deal, causing actual barrenness and miscarriages and death in the population. As the usual saying goes, there's, there must be something in the water. And perhaps you wonder why. Why is Jericho this cursed land? Why are they having all these issues? And I think here's the reason. If you remember back in the book of Joshua, chapter 6, after the destruction of Jericho, this is what Joshua said and did. Joshua 6, verse 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at the time, saying, Cursed before the Lord, be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Joshua is not just having a bad day. He's speaking with the Lord's authority. He's, see, he's saying these things in the name of the Lord, cursing the city. And what do we know about the word of the Lord? It always proves true. Centuries later, there was a man called Hiel, and he had to learn that lesson the hard way. In 1 Kings 16, verse 34, we're told, In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. What was Hiel's problem? He didn't fear the Lord. And so here we are in Jericho, and it's still a cursed land. But look at what God does through Elisha. He heals it. Where there was death and miscarriage and barrenness, now there is life, promised life. Why? Because God can turn curses into blessings. If you're like here in Jericho, this is just a preview of the big event. What did Christ do? Well, he came into this world to become the greatest curse, to take on the curse in his body. 
to face the wrath of God on the cross so that we, the cursed, might be blessed. The people in Jericho get to drink clean, healthy water for the first time in ages. But what does Christ offer the world? In John 7, 37, Jesus once said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the gospel. However cursed your life has been, God can bless you. And I want to drive this home with a little illustration. Here's, here are two people I'd like to describe to you. The first person. first person was a tyrant responsible for the deaths of millions of people. He sent his army on a rampage to try and conquer the known world. He was so vain that he built a giant statue of himself. He was so arrogant that he then forced people to bow down and worship it. And when they didn't, he threw them into a furnace to be burned alive. He honestly believed that he ruled the world. He spent the next seven years eating grass with cows. A bizarrely cursed life. Here's the next man. He was a humble man. A man who realized that God's kingdom is bigger and better than any human kingdom. A man who acknowledged the Lord as king of heaven. A man who loved to praise his creator. A man of reason and wisdom. A man who knew he was blessed. As some of you might have realized, these two people are the same person. King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a story in Daniel that we often just sort of gloss over, not thinking through. If you saw in the news this morning that Kim Jong-un had become a Christian, would you accept it on the basis of the first site you went to? Or would you do a bit of a cross-check, hey? Get the fact-checkers out there. Or uh, Putin has decided to apologize to the world. He's been causing a lot of trouble over there in uh, Russia and Ukraine. And uh, no, he's, he's, he's now become a Christian and... Um, yeah, he's very sorry, and he's going he's gonna to make reparations, and he's going to pay back all the damage, and they're going to rebuild it. Is that the kind of news that you would just accept if you read it somewhere? If someone sent a text message to you, would you go, oh, wow, amazing, move along? And yet, those stories don't even compare with what happened in King Nebuchadnezzar's life. King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just some tin pot dictator. He was the real deal. He was the most powerful man on the planet. And God humbled him and turned him around. God saw curses and blessed. So you've sinned. Your life is miserable. The consequences of your sin stick to you like epoxy resin. What does God have to offer you today? Blessings in the land of curses. Hope for the hopeless. Help for the helpless. Love for the loveless, joy for the joyless. And that's why we fear the Lord. This isn't a servile fear. It is a joyful, liberating fear. It's a fear that destroys all other fears, which is why Reformation Sunday is so much bigger, so much more glorious, so much better than this hollow, empty shell of Halloween. In Jeremiah 33, verse 9, the Lord says this, and in this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good I shall do for them. They shall fear and tremble 
because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Isn't that interesting? We are a people who are called to love, to fear the Lord, to find joy in fearing him who is in charge. Let's continue our journey with Elisha now to Bethel. If Jericho is the land of curse, well, what is the land of Bethel? Where did Bethel get its name from? Some of you might remember the story. It all began with a uh, one, one long night on a, a stone, stony pillow. The kind of dreams you have when you uh, do that might be rather bizarre. But in this case, Jacob had a real vision of angels descending from heaven down to earth. He beheld the glory of God. And when he woke up the next day, he realized where he had been. And this is what he said. Genesis 28 verse 17. And Jacob was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. So that's how Bethel got its name. But what's happened to Bethel in the meantime? What did Bethel become? Well, sadly, there was a man called Jeroboam. And what he did was to turn Bethel from the house of God into the house of a golden calf, a place of idolatry. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find when we come to the new version of Bethel, that they're going to be the fruits of idolatry outside its walls. And Elisha is then greeted by a very uh, hostile crowd. And I should point out here that the description given to these rabble-rousers in the ESV doesn't really do justice to what's going on here. It's a bit misleading. These are not small boys. The uh, NIV does a better job calling them youths. If you want some indication of the age of these individuals, it helps to bear in mind that there are two different words here used in verse 23 and 24 that refer to this crowd. And the word translated boys in verse 24 is the same word used to describe Daniel and his friends when they were in the land of Babylon. And they were hardly little boys, so neither are these. The other thing to point out is that there were a lot of them. As you can see for yourself, the 42 that are mentioned in verse 24 represent only a portion of those who came out of the city to greet Elisha. So what are we to make of what happened? Clearly, there's a blatant hostility against the prophet of God, along with the very real prospect of violence. Unfortunately for this lot, they've forgotten what happened to the two cohorts of armed men in the previous chapter who decided to accost Elisha's predecessor, Elijah, on the top of an unnamed hill. And uh, if you haven't read that story, it's a cracker. Let's just say the marshmallows weren't wasted on the top. <laughs> 100 soldiers got burnt to a crisp because they thought they could arrest a prophet of God. So here we are again, taking on a prophet of God, treating him with disrespect. And what does this show us? It shows us that these young men do not fear the Lord. And so God appoints two angry bears 
to give these scoffers an unforgettable theological lesson. One bear, well, one prophet, <laughs> two bears, and 42 reasons to fear the Lord. Because if you think about it, who's getting angry here? It's not Elisha who's most offended. He curses them in the name of the Lord. But where do these bears come from? Are these, are these Elisha's bears? Has he been, you know, are they, did he raise them from cubs and, and train them? And he keeps them in the forest for occasions like this. They're, they're hit bears. Does that make any sense? I don't see him going, and uh, Lord, make it two bears while you're at it. He doesn't even give the suggestion. He just says, I curse you in the name of the Lord. And these bears tear out of the forest and tear these guys up. Why? Because it's God who's angry. If God wasn't angry with these 40 plus individuals, nothing would have happened. God would have gone, get over it. Grow up, Elisha. But he doesn't do that because this is his prophet, which means he's appointed a man to speak his words to the people. And if they're his words and not Elisha's words, you need to listen to these words. You need to fear him. And so he brings two bears out to savage those youngsters. Why does he do something like that? Here's Hosea 13, verse 4 to 8. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed and became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. This is not Halloween with fake plastic masks and skeletons and spray-painted blood. This is the real deal. And in fact, God often uses animals to teach people to fear him. God got a donkey to speak to Balaam. He had a big fish swallow up Jonah. He got snakes to bite the Israelites in the wilderness. Dogs licked up the blood of Jezebel. Frogs multiplied through Egypt. Worms ate up Herod. In fact, if you read in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 13 and 20, he used two lions on different occasions to kill people who didn't obey his word, who didn't take him seriously. And in fact, later in 2 Kings 17, verses 25 to 26, when the new occupants of Israel arrived from Assyria, followed the first exile, this is what we're told. 2 Kings 17, verse 25, at the beginning of their dwelling there, these new people didn't fear the Lord. They had kicked out the old occupants, they had moved into their homes, and they discovered something. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you've carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them and behold, they are killing them 
because they do not know the law of the God of the land. So here we are outside Bethel facing the same lesson. Two bears attack and rip up 42 youths. Why? Because they need to learn to fear the Lord. Now, does this mean that God always protects his prophets in this way? Well, no, because let's face it, Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern. Isaiah was sawn in two. Stephen was stoned. John the Baptist had his head cut off. John was exiled. Peter was crucified upside down. To which you might wonder, where's the motivation to fear the Lord in those cases? In fact, what about Christ? What did we do with Christ? This Lord that we've been talking about this morning, that we should fear. When he came here in person, he didn't just send his messengers, he came eventually. And what did we do to him? We flogged him, we mocked him, we crucified him. Where's the lesson to fear the Lord then? Well, we would do well to heed the words of the Lord at that time in history. Because before those events take place, what do we find Jesus doing outside the gates of Jerusalem? In Matthew 23, verse 37, he's weeping. He's weeping for Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, the city that stones the prophets and kills those that are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. And then why does he plead for them from the cross? When Christ has been crucified on the cross, he is pleading for the people who are crucifying him. Luke 23, verse 34, he cries out, Father, forgive them. Why? For they don't know what they're doing. What does he know that they don't? Well, we don't have to speculate. Weeks before Jesus hangs on that cross, he tells us what to expect. He tells us the parable of the wicked tenants who kill the heir. Matthew 21, verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit of in their seasons. In case it isn't already obvious, Jesus interprets this parable for us. Verse 43, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He also tells us the parable of the wedding feast, which ends like this, Matthew 22, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But there's more. Here's Jesus again in the parable of the master and his servants. Matthew 24, verse 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him in with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the parable of the ten virgins. Matthew 25, verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were 
ready, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Then there's the parable of the talents. How does that end? Matthew 25, verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you find these parables to be too cryptic, here's what Jesus has to say about those who refuse to fear the Lord in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you didn't visit me then they also will answer saying lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you then he will answer them saying truly i say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these you didn't do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life in other words, what we have here in 2 Kings 2 is just a tiny, tiny glimpse of what will happen to those who do not bow the knee before this great God. 42 mauled youths bear witness to the great wisdom of fearing the Lord. So there you have it. Blessings in the land of curses. Curses in the land of blessing, both stories underlining one irrefutable reality, God must be feared. What do we do with the word of the Lord? We read it, we respect it, we love it, we fear it, and we remember we are grass. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow. The word of the Lord remains forever. As Elisha would tell us, Elijah is gone Yahweh remains. Let me pray for us. Father, we do not fear you as we ought to fear you. You are a great God. You are a holy God. You are an awesome God. And I pray that you would stir up within each one of us a sober perspective of our lives and a vision of you that will transform the way that we approach our week, how we speak to people, what we do with the opportunities you give us. And in this room, 
We don't know how long we, we have. We don't know how long, how many days you've given us to live in this life, but I pray that we would not waste them, that we would not be ashamed of you and your gospel, that we would be courageous, that we would do great things knowing that you are a great God. Amen.